Good afternoon, Soma. It's great to be here. And it truly is great to be here. You know, even though it's wet and cold, do you know why today, this afternoon, is the best Sunday of the year for you to be here? What's that? Well, Pi Day, 3.14, yes, for sure. But also, for Sunday morning church people like me, you know, we lost an hour and we had to hit that snooze alarm a couple times. You guys woke up, you're like, we have hours until church starts. So spring forward doesn't affect Soma at all, which you should really enjoy. So um, I am uh, I'm grateful to be asked to be back, and I have been part of a couple different uh, iterations of you guys as, you, as you've moved around. Um, this is a really neat space here, and I, I enjoy worshiping with you this afternoon. Uh, we're going to be, as, as you heard read, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6 in just a minute. Um, if you want to grab a Bible and turn there, if you have a codex form or a scrolling form, I'm open to all forms of Bible. You know, if you've paid attention, even in a minimal way, to the news this week, you've heard probably several times that we passed a milestone as a, as a nation in terms of this whole year of the pandemic. We have, we have gone through one whole year, depending on where you are, but certainly in California, it's been a year officially since things have sort of shut down and, and businesses shut down and our access to things in school, of course restaurants, movie theaters, gyms, all those things that were part of the rhythms of our life were, were taken away. And it's been a year since uh, we've been part of that. And now, God willing, things are slowly maybe beginning to change. And uh, we're hopeful for that. But in some ways, we've been changed uh, through this. And, and it's been difficult things. All of us have had to endure some kind of adjustment to this Many of us, on top of just those superficial adjustments, many of us have held the devastation of uh, loved ones being sick or maybe, maybe losing them to the disease, or certainly the fallout from, from the economy that has been affected by all this. I mean, we can go down the line, and there's been some very heavy things that have been weighing on our hearts and our families, legitimate things for us to be concerned about. And, and as you heard in the passage where Jesus is going in the Sermon on the Mount is about anxiety and, and worry. And it's interesting. I'm going to start with the ending, if that's okay, because the last line, he says, each day has enough to worry about. That's my paraphrase. Each day has plenty to worry about, okay? Um, and what does that mean? It means that there are legitimate things that our hearts should be heavy and broken and anxious about. But what concerns me, and I think what concerned Jesus in this passage that we're going to get to in a second, there are some things that, that we're told we need to be anxious about that maybe we shouldn't be that the world sort of puts in our face that, that this is something you should fear. This is something that you should wring your hands over and it distracts us and takes us out of this place of what are ultimate things. Yes, there are things that our hearts are going to be heavy about, so kids and career and, and health and, and what's going on in politics or whatever, but we shouldn't live these fearful lives. And, and just yesterday, I was on my computer and you know how um, on your homepage or whatever, sometimes there's suggested news articles to read. And a major news outlet had an article that the title of it, let me make sure I get this right. The title of this article was uh, Nine Things That Weren't Scary Before the Pandemic But Are Now. And they were, they were pretty normal things like making eye contact. It's supposed to be scary now. 
Uh, shaking hands or, or hugging, it's scary now. Um, being in groups of people, large crowds, it's scary. And, and that's what I'm talking about, this, this undue uh, sort of forced fear-mongering that is happening out in our society that's saying, you should be worried about this thing, when in fact, like, making eye contact shouldn't be scary, <laughs> regardless of what's going on with, with the pandemic. Um, shaking hands and hugging and physical contact, we should be thoughtful about, for sure. We shouldn't be scared of it. Being in groups of people, we should be wise and we should be courteous and respectful, but it shouldn't be something that makes us fearful in our life. And, and there's, as Jesus says, there's plenty of things of the day that might um, be heavy on our hearts, but let's not let fear, worry, anxiety rule our lives, become our kingdom. And this is what the Sermon on the Mount is about. It's about where our kingdom is, where we are invested, what throne we bow down before. Um, so let's get into it, and let's go back to the Sermon on the Mount, where you've been in several weeks, the last several weeks as I understand it, what it means to be a citizen in the kingdom of God. Uh, this is really Jesus' great statement on who he is, and who God is, and who we are, and how we are to interact with that. Uh, the, the Magna Carta, if you want, of, of the kingdom of Jesus Christ that he came to inaugurate. And it's here we have the, the Sermon on the Mount. So before we even get to our passage, just a, a little thought, you know, experiment. Why the Mount? Why the Sermon on the Mount? And why not the Sermon in the Tabernacle or the Sermon of the Temple or the Sermon out in the Wilderness? And our first song we sang this afternoon spoke to that. Uh, the, the, the mountains are the righteousness of God. You know, in the ancient Middle East, mountains occupied a very important place. There were this foreboding, powerful place. And so all the ancient Middle Eastern cultures had this idea that their gods dwelled in these mountains. Way up in the north of the Holy Land in Mount Hermon, the Canaanites believed that's where their gods dwelled. And of course, down way on the south, on Mount Sinai, that's where Yahweh reveals himself to Moses. That's where God will eventually give the law to Moses. And, and really, that's the, the, the birthplace in a lot of ways of the people of Israel. The nation of Israel was at that mountain. The prophet Ezekiel will even describe Eden as a, as a mountain garden. And then, of course, Jesus comes, and, and in the Gospel of Mark, he calls his disciples and officially points them as apostles on a mountainside. Jerusalem built on a mountaintop, and Jesus will be crucified on a craggy little hill called Golgotha. And, of course, here in Matthew and in uh, the Gospel of Luke, the parallel passage, Jesus is saying, here's the most important thing I have to say about the kingdom of God, and I'm doing it on a mountain. Because mountains are where God reveals his, his power and his purposes. So going in with that mindset, reminder of, of why this sermon is so important, the sermon of Jesus, it's because this is really uh, where Jesus is going to say what God says with authority and his plans and his purposes for the world is, is coming through me right now. And we, we can't uh, undervalue the importance of the Sermon on the Mount. And then we get to this passage, this really practical, important passage. And, and you heard it read just a few minutes ago, but Jesus talks about anxiety and not worrying about what we eat or what we drink. Um, he says, look at the birds of the air. You look at the, the flowers in the garden. All these natural occurrences of things that God takes care of, and, and they don't worry one day 
about it. And likewise, we are supposed to, to have this same thought. He goes on about it for some time. And then he ends with this great declaration in Matthew 6.33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you as well. So I want to uh, speak mostly to that, that key verse there in Matthew 33. But to get there, we need to talk about worry, anxiety, where that comes from. Ultimately, I think worry anxiety, and anxiety are manifestations of fear. They, they sort of are occupying the same space as fear. In fact, you might say that, that worry in your life, what, what burdens your mind and keeps you up at night, is that slow burning, that slow simmer of fear that maybe you don't always think about. It's not that gripping, jump out at you kind of fear. It's that slow percolating fear that just manifests itself in, in, in worry, anxiety, all those things that as 21st century people, we struggle with. Because again, while there are things that are legitimate concerns in our life, there are things that are sometimes expectations from this world or um, from, from the media or, or whatever it is, from other people in our lives that are saying, this is something you need to be fearful of. This is something you need to worry about. The, the unchecked natural drift of the kingdom of this world is fear-driven. And Jesus says there is a truer and better kingdom. So as we consider this, you know, I was realizing that this passage here as, as part more or less in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount is structured a lot like the rest of the sermon, which has oftentimes a one-two punch approach to it. Jesus will say, you have seen it read, or you, you know it's written, but I tell you this. There's always a, uh, a problem and a solution, or you might say a call and a response. And so here's the call. Here's this, this first part of this passage, is this call to recognize that we have these worries in our life. We have these anxieties, and oftentimes they're about basic things like survival and food and, and, and clothing and identity. And then the, the response is going to be what we do with that, how we, how we seek a truer and better kingdom through that. So the call part, the worry part, I want to talk about in terms of the original listeners of these words. Uh, as I like to remind my congregation, and I didn't make this up, but I, I read this from, I think, smart, godly people who, who write about these things, but the Bible is written for us, but it wasn't written to us. And by that, we should understand that it's important to understand what's going on in the life of those hearers and listeners, because when we understand them, we can better extrapolate from that how it is written for us. But the, the Sermon on the Mount was spoken to a large group of, of probably Jewish peasants, like mostly poor people. So what were they worried about at that time in their life? And I would say, as much as we worry about politics and, and social change and, and all those things, that was amplified for them because their whole world was uh, demanded by their Roman occupation. Uh, they were a, a poor group of people living on a very hotly contested piece of geography. And once again, if you go through the history of the people of Israel, once again, they were conquered. Once again, they were, their people were on the very edge of extinction. And once again, they had a heavy hand of an oppressor over them. And if you were a poor person in Israel, and most of them were because there wasn't really a middle class, there was the aristocracy that sort of went along to get along with Rome, if that makes sense. And then there was the, the, the poor folks and the working class, and they didn't have a voice. 
they had enormous taxation. They didn't have any voice in, in how their, their, uh, their people were run. And they had to worry about where their next meal would come from. Would their kids have jobs? Would their husband come home uh, with a job or not? So, or with money to get them through the next season? I mean, those kind of basic survival things on top of the, the worry about just who we are as a people. Is God forgetting about us? Is God going to come through on his promises he made? God has been silent for hundreds of years now. And so those were the real worries of the Jewish people who were the audience of, of this sermon originally. And, and again, we can have legitimate concerns about health and the pandemic and the economy and our kids and, and politics and, so, and social issues. Um, and just to know that, that there are some of those things that are, are real and legitimate and some of those things that we take and, and we listen to the kingdom of this world amplify that into this fear-driven life. And, and how to recognize the difference between those things is tough. And I can't imagine I can give you the specific answer to that in your life. I know that I, I worry about my kids. My kids are grown in their 20s, and there's not a day goes by I don't worry about them. But I don't want to be a, a fear-driven parent either. I want to be a faith-driven parent. And so how do we distinguish between those things? That's, that's part of the, the nuance of this passage here. But, you know, um, as Paul mentioned, I, I worked with, with college students at Stanford for a few years. And it was an interesting season of ministry and life going from working with churches for so long and then working in a, in a campus ministry. And I, I, I love those students. I got to learn a lot about them. But I realized that a lot of these, you know, 18, 19 year old kids, they, they worked so hard and stressed so much about getting into what would be their dream college, SATs and community service and their grades and, of course, the finances of it all. And then they get to Stanford or fill in whatever dream college or, or whatever special place fits in this formula. They get to that place and their worries don't just suddenly melt away. If anything, they become amplified. And, and the students I worked with at Stanford were, were fine young men and women, but to a person, to each one of them, they all had some anxiety they were worried about. And for some, they navigated it pretty well, and for others, it became um, a, a real issue. And, and statistically, this is true of college students these days across the board. I think something like one in six college students have had some kind of professional diagnosis for anxiety depression, something in, in that space of, of mental health. Because they're told you need to get the right class, you can't miss out on what these other students are doing. Um, when you're a freshman, you need to be worried about what internship you're going to have next summer. You need to be thinking about what companies are going to be interested in you in four years. I mean, ridiculous things that an 18-year-old should not be worried about. And then they, they graduate, and again, the worries don't just magically melt away when you're no longer a college student. Now it just becomes amplified into the adult world and the cycle continues because the kingdom of this world is fear-driven and Jesus says there is a truer and a better way. Therefore, do not be anxious. What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And no wonder Jesus was so popular immediately because he had an answer to these things. 
And maybe it wasn't the answer they were looking for. Maybe they wanted uh, someone to, to overthrow Rome. Maybe they wanted someone to produce bread and fish magically, you know, or to heal all their disease, to fix all their problems. And Jesus certainly had the capacity to do that, and he would demonstrate his power and his authority by doing some miracles. But that wasn't the kingdom he was about. The kingdom he was about was going to be different and richer and truer and deeper and better. So what was this kingdom? And, and here's the response. If, if the call is, don't worry about these things, and here's the response, then, then what should we ultimately be about? Verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. This is such a, a powerful declaration that if you haven't already, I would encourage you just to, to, to meditate on that verse, internalize that verse, memorize it. Remember when we used to memorize verses? It's kind of a, an old-fashioned thing these days because uh, we always have a, a phone and a Bible on the phone. But memorize this verse. It's an easy one. Or personalize it. Make it a, a prayer. Lord, let me seek you first today and your righteousness. And I trust you that all these things will be added to me as well. Uh, it's a beautiful prayer. So I want to break down the main parts of it. I feel like I'm competing with the rain, right? Can you, can you hear me? All right. Good. So just to, to focus on the seek and the seek first and the righteousness, I'm sorry, the seek first and the kingdom and the righteousness. Those are the three main components we want to look at. So uh, first, this, this idea of seeking first. And I wish I could tell you I did this extensive word study of this phrase and I found all kinds of amazing answers and nuances about it. And the fact of the matter is, it means exactly the same thing in Greek as it does in English. It means to, to look for something as your primary search. Um, but it, that is actually saying a lot because it speaks to two things that are pretty elusive and, and pretty elastic in our life these days. And I'd say especially in the last year. And those two things are our focus and our priorities. To seek first really challenges that idea of focus and priority. For those of us who have been working mostly at home in the past year and and uh, you know, I, I think a lot of industry has, has moved that way. Um, ministry, we're doing a lot of work at home too. And I find myself when I'm working at home super distracted, easily distracted, unfocused. And part of the problem is that this tool that we use for most of us in most of our industry, this computer thing, you know, as helpful as it is in our work, it's only two clicks away from something completely distracting that has nothing to do with your work. WandaVision theory videos or amusing cat memes, you know, whatever your thing is, it's right there on the main tool that you're using eight, nine hours a day. And I find myself very easily distracted when I'm just at home and, and there's not the, the, the rhythms of being in a, in a workplace like that. To seek first means we really have to guard ourselves against that which would distract us from ultimate things. And, and what's more ultimate than the pursuit of God? And that goes the same with priority. Priority is maybe even more of a tricky thing because the priority question says, what are you ultimately about? What is the most important thing to you? And we answer that often with, what's the most important thing to me right now? And that last little phrase, right now, is, is hard because it changes all the time. Years ago, there was a book called The Tyranny of the Urgent, and that phrase, honestly, I didn't even read the book because that title was all I needed to, to really recalibrate and readjust, to remember that 
I can't suffer a slow death by a million urgent things. I need to really decide what is the true urgent thing. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God. Make it your focus. Make it your priority. It's it's an active participation in what God is doing in your life. It's not passive. And honestly, church, sometimes, sometimes we as Christians, and I would say as evangelicals, we struggle when we're told, okay, this is something you do to increase your, uh, your, your capacity to grow in Christ, you know, because we want to avoid language of doing something or works or merit. And I believe that wholeheartedly, that there, there's absolutely nothing I can do to, to win God's favor. I'm, I'm completely inadequate in that area. Jesus had to do that for me on the cross. And yet, now that I've been given freely this amazing gift of this restored relationship with God because of Jesus, I should make it a focus and a priority every day to seek after that, to work out my salvation, Paul says, or as Joshua says, to choose daily whom I'll serve. I mean, there's a lot of language in the Bible about making an intentional choice today to seek God. And that's what this passage is saying. It's a reminder. Seek first. Okay, so seek first. The second main concept here is, is the kingdom. And the, the kingdom is such a big concept. It, it really is the topic of the Sermon on the Mount. I think you could make a case that it's the topic of the Bible. Because in, in a very short form, and certainly you could spend a long time studying this, but in a very capsulated form, the kingdom of God is the outworking of God's purposes in the world. And there's, there's all kinds of, of, of shape and, and, and color to it because we know through the promises of Scripture that the kingdom of God in its fullness is still to come, but we also know that the kingdom of God was inaugurated by Jesus Christ. So there is something of the kingdom to be had right here and now. And just earlier in the same chapter, what does Jesus say in his prayer? Your kingdom come... And your will be done. Make the manifestation of your purposes, Lord, be true here on earth as it is in heaven. So that's really what kingdom means. And it began in the very first pages of the Bible. When we see this picture of a, of a perfect garden scene with God in absolute fellowship with his creation and, and the pinnacle of his creation, these image bearers of his creation, this man and woman, and the two of them in harmony with themselves and with creation. And they have holy work to do. And they have a holy mission to accomplish. And there is everything they could possibly need to accomplish this together in joy. I mean, that, that is perfection. That is the kingdom. Those are God's purposes. And so when we think of kingdom, we want to think, what's, what's the earliest portrait we have of God expressing his perfect purposes? And it's in those opening pages in Genesis, that unfortunately, you know, sin enters in and changes the whole trajectory of God's kingdom. Seek first the kingdom. The kingdom represents the very passions we've always longed for. C.S. Lewis says, I find myself desires that nothing in this world can satisfy And the only logical explanation is that I was created for another world. And the other world he's talking about that he can't find any satisfaction in in this world is this kingdom, you know? 
And it's not some faraway ethereal thing. He's, he's not saying I'm, I'm made for some other planet. He's saying I'm made for some other um, uh, a sovereign rule of, of this place. Because the, the broken, fear-driven place, kingdom that, that we're in right now, can't satisfy our desires. Or if I go to another really smart Christian English guy, N.T. Wright, he says it a certain way where he gives us some real handholds to think about the kingdom, some real tangible expressions. Uh, N.T. Wright, he's a historian and New Testament scholar, he says he identifies the kingdom as our passion for justice, our longing for spirituality, our hunger for relationship, and our yearning for beauty. And if you think about those things, I mean, those are things that are actually, we can, we can understand them and we can apprehend them, we can pursue them. And when we, when we search and make a priority of a, a lesser form of justice or a lesser expression of relationship or some lesser version of spirituality or some lesser showing of beauty, we are settling for a lesser kingdom. That's how that works. So the kingdom of God is God's expression of justice and relationship and spirituality and beauty. And finally, there's the righteousness piece. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And the righteousness piece really is the, the character part of this. It's the, it's the outward part. It's how my search of God's kingdom in my life affects you and how yours affects me and how we together as a church affect the world. Because the Sermon on the Mount clearly has ethical and character components to it, right? So this is the part of turning the other cheek and walking the extra mile and, and being true to your word and, and being faithful to your covenants and, and, and removing things in your life that cause you to stumble. Those are the righteousness parts, the parts where we are being formed to be like Christ in, in how we interact with one another. Because otherwise, it would just be this very internal, interior type of pursuit, right? If it didn't have the righteousness component, the seeking first of the kingdom of God would just be this great thing where it's just you and Jesus on this road, and you don't worry about what everyone else is doing, and they don't worry about you. But that's the world's version, right? Because worry makes us very interior. Worry and anxiety makes us really turn inside, doesn't it? And when you really have that thing burdening your heart, sometimes you, you limit access people have to your life, right? Because you're concerned about your thing. And again, not to say that we're not going to do that sometimes. There's legitimate times where we're going to have burdens on our heart. But what I'm saying is the righteousness part of this is saying it shouldn't end there. This, this pursuit shouldn't be an interior pursuit. It should be about relationships. It should be about character. It should be about how our life rubs up against another in a way that is honoring Christ. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And finally it says, all these things shall be added. And of course, you want to see what, what things should be added. And the answer is, is really simple because it's two verses um, in front of that. He says in verse 31, um, do not be anxious, saying, what do we eat? What do we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. There's the same phrase. The Gentiles, or just shorthand form for people not pursuing the kingdom of God, in this case, those people are not seeking after all these things because they're concerned about basic items of, of survival and identity and self-protection. 
And so when Jesus says, all these things shall be added to you as well, that's what he means. And, and again, it's, it's almost got this quality of Eden once again, because our mandate in Eden was to be blessed and to thrive and to go out beyond this beautiful garden into the chaotic world and take this kingdom and spread it outward. And Jesus is saying all these things, being blessed and thriving, blessing, being a blessing to others, those things will be added as well. When you are seeking first, making your priority and your focus, God's purposes and his mission in the world and the character of Christ, all these things will be added to you as well. What I wanted to do before we, we, uh, we wrap up in this part of Matthew here, I, I wanted to connect it to, to a real world, a real story, so to speak, of, of how this plays out in someone's life. And there's probably dozens of examples in scripture where we could see this, but I wanted to take us back to probably an unlikely scene because it, it's, it's in a different country. It's in a different time from Jesus. It goes back about 800 years and this is during the time of the divided kingdom of Israel. So um, the later part of the Old Testament, the kingdom of Israel, of course, was split to a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And they all had their, their issues with, um, with sin and idolatry and some good kings and some bad kings. In the book of 2 Kings, and, and you don't need to turn there. I'm just going to tell a story real brief. But 2 Kings chapter 5 tells a story about a Syrian army commander named Naaman. And uh, Syria and Israel, the northern kingdom, had a sort of a back-and-forth relationship. And Syria was, was the victor in this particular point. Naaman was their great army uh, commander. And this is how he's described. He's a commander um, of the army of Syria, a great man um, with his master, high in favor, because the Lord had given him victory to, to Syria. He was a man of valor, but he was a leper. So all these statements about Naaman being great, being accomplished, being a man of valor, but also the statement of, of physical condition. He was, he was a leper. And think about Naaman, someone so accomplished, someone so successful in what he's been given to do, someone so well-respected, yet he had this brokenness that was probably the thing that kept him up at night. It was this brokenness that probably kept his relationships at a certain distance. I mean, like literally at a distance because he had leprosy and people didn't probably want to be around him. And, and as much as he accomplished and as much respect as he had for what he did, he probably carried this heavy weight that he was never good enough because he was sort of an outcast in that regard. And it was his burden to bear. And this young Jewish girl who was a servant in his household said if, you could go, if, if, if Commander Naaman could go down and see our prophet down in Israel, see Elisha, I'm sure he could heal him. And so the whole story unfolds and he gets permission from the king and he decides to take his whole entourage down to Israel to see this prophet. And there's sort of an odd scene where Elisha doesn't even bother coming out to see him, just sends a messenger and says, oh, tell that guy to dip seven times in the river, Jordan. And Naaman takes, takes certain umbrage to this. I'm, I'm the commander of the army, and you want me to dip in this muddy river? It won't even come out to see me, but you want me to dip seven times in this river? We have better rivers in Syria, he said. <clears throat> and if you pause right there at uh, Naaman's story, what was he seeking? He was seeking healing, 
What was his kingdom? His kingdom was, was Syria. And what was his righteousness or his character? It was bound up in his pride and his valor. But by some, uh, some unfolding of events based on their relationships, his own men said, Commander Naaman, we're all the way down here. The, oh, just try it. Just go into the river like the prophet says. So amazingly, he swallows this pride and he goes alongside the river. Now imagine he's with this whole entourage of these men he commands and he slowly takes off these pieces of his armor he takes off his tunic. He's really exposing for probably the first time to anyone the depth of which his body is broken by this disease. He's becoming uh, very vulnerable in this, very humbled in this. And folks, to switch your search and to switch your kingdom and to switch your character, there has to be some transformation from pride to humility. And that's what Naaman experienced. So he humbles himself. He goes into the Jordan one time. Nothing happens. Two times. Nothing happens. He repeats this several times, six times, nothing happens. Seven times he comes out and the Bible describes his skin as like being, being like the skin of a child, like fresh and new and whole. And I, and I want to read this part here because this is uh, what happens. Then he returned to the man of God, meaning Elisha. He and all his company, and he came and stood before him and he said, behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Which was really an amazing statement because the ancients, they thought of their gods very regionally, you know. Syrians had their God and the Canaanites had their God and the Edomites had their God and the Israelites, they have Yahweh down there. But now Naaman is saying, no, there's no God in all the earth but in Israel. And he says, so accept now a present from your servant and Elisha said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. Naaman wanted to give him a tip, basically. And Elisha said, no, that's not cool. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, if not, please let there be given to your servant two mules load of earth. For from now on, your servant will not offer a burnt offering or sacrifice to any God but the Lord. In this manner, may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the house of Rimon to worship there, leaning on my arm. And I bow myself in the house of Rimon. When I bow myself in the house of Rimon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. And Elijah said to him, go in peace. So, I mean, what's going on here? It's kind of odd. So basically, Naaman's life has changed. His whole search has changed. His whole uh, identity of who he is has changed and, and who, whose God he follows. And he says, here, take this money, Elijah. Elijah says, no. And he says, well, at least let me take some dirt from Israel and take it with me. Because now my citizenship is here. I belong to Yahweh. And I, I want a token of that. I want a reminder of that. So he grabs two donkey loads of dirt and he takes it back up to Syria. And then he says this really odd thing. He says, you know, in the course of my work as a political and military official, I'm going to have to accompany the king to these official things with this, this foreign God. And, and when I do that, what I'm really doing, I really, I'm, I'm holding Yahweh in my heart as I do that. But I still have to do my work and do this thing. And is that cool, Elijah? And Elijah says, that's cool. Or in Hebrew, he says, shalom, go in peace, you know. So in other words, his seeking was healing. His kingdom was Syria. His righteousness or character was his pride. And then God changed that. 
So his search was for the one true God in all the land. His citizenship was now in the kingdom of that God, you know, verified by the actual soil of Israel. And he said, in terms of the character piece, when my job and my relationships conflict with who God is, I'm going to choose Yahweh. I'm going to choose Yahweh. And you think about it, you know, he didn't have any, he didn't have the Ten Commandments. The northern tribes of Israel were not the best people to learn about the moral law of God from at that time. All he had was this transformational experience and it changed his citizenship forever. And the question for us post-COVID is, you know, where is our citizenship going to be? Are we beholden to this this fear-driven world? Or are we going to search for a truer and better kingdom? We are living in interesting times, but we're not the first ones to live in interesting times, you know? I was reading in a, in a devotional work recently about uh, a saint called Julian of Norwich. She was a, a woman who was being described as a mystic, which just means she, she thought meditatively about Jesus a lot. And she lived in England in the 14th century, in the middle of the Black Plague, when at least 50% of England's population was afflicted or dead because of the bubonic plague. And she writes this, the worst has already happened and been repaired. All shall be well, all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. What is the worst that can happen, church? That we get sick, that we lose our job, that our freedoms are imposed upon, those are all bad things. But what's the worst thing that can happen? That we would be alienated from our creator who loves us. That we'd be forever separated from God. And that has already happened and been repaired at the cross. Amen. Amen. All shall be well. All shall be well. All manner of things shall be well. The world says... You got to live in fear because the next bad thing is just around the corner. And Jesus says, fear not because of me, because of a truer and better kingdom, all manner of things shall be well. Can I pray for you this afternoon? Lord God, we are so grateful for your words in this sermon and how they reach across 2,000 years into our lives and how Naaman's story reaches across almost 3,000 years into our life. And Lord, I want to every day choose to serve your kingdom. And for my brothers and sisters here this afternoon, I want them every day to choose justice instead of some lesser form of it. To choose authentic relationships instead of some toxic lesser form of it. To choose true spirituality with you instead of something less. And to to add to beauty in this world and not to be affected by ugliness. Lord, let us know you. Let us our prayer be that your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And let us know that in you, and because of the cross, all shall be well. All shall be well. All manner of things shall be well. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.